Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 5th, 2020, and this is show number 778. Well, you might notice I'm on a different mic right now, and there's a reason for that. I have to tell you that Steve and I are terribly pleased to announce that we have not one, but two new baby granddaughters. Our son Kyle and his wife Nikki had a baby girl named Kennedy, and just a month later, our daughter Lindsay and her husband Nolan had a baby girl named Sienna. Everyone is healthy and happy, and we're absolutely delighted. We made the decision to be with Lindsay and Nolan to take care of our grandson Forbes for a week while they get used to the new baby, hence being on the road with the new road mic. Now, you know what, guys? I put out the plea for help on the podcast because I knew this was an upcoming event and so many wonderful people created reviews for the show. I'm going to play one this week for Med Tobias and save the rest for next week and the week after so I can play even more with the kids. I got to tell you, the NoSillaCast ways are always there for us and I appreciate it so much. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, it is another programming by Stealth. And Bart takes us through the last hat that JavaScript objects can wear, encapsulation. As Bart walks us through the problems encapsulation solves using a funny NoSillaCast-specific example, he shows us how the code becomes reusable and shareable with encapsulation and even more readable as a great side effect. It was great fun, and I'll bet you that Kaylee is going to lose her ever-loving mind when she hears it. It's awesome. You can listen along at podfeet.com or subscribe in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Programming by Stealth. I've got another video tutorial up on Screencast Online, this time for Rogue Amoeba's SoundSource tool. SoundSource is like sound preferences on steroids. You can route audio from every app to a different output source. So, for example, you could route Safari to your internal speakers while the music app is routed to your good computer speakers. You can even change the audio output levels by application or completely mute an application using SoundSource. You can boost audio levels with Magic Boost, bringing up the low levels while leaving uh, the high volume levels alone. If you've ever wanted better control over the audio on your Mac, I think you'd really get something out of this tutorial about SoundSource. Now, Screencast Online is a subscription tutorial service, but you can get a free seven-day trial, or if you've already done the free trial, there's a 50% discount going on right now, so you can get 12 weeks for $12. That is a steal to be able to listen to the whole back catalog. Check it out over at screencastonline.com. In case you couldn't figure it out from the tutorial that I just talked about on SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba, I am a huge fan of Rogue Amoeba's tools, and my favorite app of all is Audio Hijack. In fact, I'm such a huge fan that when I was at the AltConf last year and they were giving out free drink tickets if you answered a question, and I was asked, what one app would keep you from ever switching to Windows? I answered without hesitation, Audio Hijack. So now that we've established how important Audio Hijack is to me, I'll give you a brief overview of what the software does. After that, I want to, give, I want to share some of the more interesting sessions I've created with Audio Hijack. Now, you'll be able to download these sessions from the article and run them yourself if you find them interesting. Now, you may think that you'd never have a need for Audio Hijack because you don't record a podcast, but there are so many other things you can do with it that you may find a use for this awesome software. So, I want to give the brief overview, like I said. Audio Hijack is a macOS app that allows you to capture audio from different sources using microphones and even applications. It then lets you pipe audio through special audio unit effects to sweeten the sound. And finally, you can pipe the output to multiple sources and even record the audio you've hijacked. 
Audio Hijack's interface is like nothing I've ever used. It has a blank canvas and you drag sources, outputs, and effects onto that canvas. If you're visually impaired, Audio Hijack, like all of Rogue Amoeba's software, is completely accessible. The software simply calls out to you the location of each block in XY coordinates. So in VoiceOver, you'll hear it say things like, your microphone has no input connections, one output connection to 10-band equalizer at 2.75x, 2.55y. I'm sorry, 2.25y. I've taught two blind people to use Audio Hijack so far, and they left a one-hour session with me knowing exactly how to use the tool. I'm going to give me partial, myself partial credit for being a great teacher and being smart enough to let them drive while I watch on screen, on screen sharing. But I got to say, the other 90% of the credit goes to Rogue Amoeba for an amazing implementation of voiceover with what looks to be a very graphical interface. So as I said, you drag in these blocks for inputs, outputs, and audio effects. When the blocks get near each other, they become connected by a line. This shows how the audio will flow from block to block. When you start an audio hijack session using the run button, you'll actually see the audio flow between the blocks as a yellow line. That yellow line saved me just the other day. I was recording with Bart, and I glanced down to verify the yellow line was moving on both of our tracks, only to discover there was no yellow line for Bart. Luckily, we had just started recording, so I was able to just stop and start over. Now, at the very simplest, an audio hijack session uh, just has to have an input and an output. But you can go way beyond this by adding in blocks for applications and broadcast streaming and equalizers and meters and more. You can get really creative with all of these options and do some very interesting things. Now, I said this overview would be brief, so I'm going to cut myself off, but I could go on and on about how much fun this app is. If you want an in-depth tutorial, I did one for Screencast Online quite a while ago at screencastonline.com. Now, you'll see that it's archived, but that just means it's old. It doesn't mean it's not current. The app has been stable at version 3 with no huge revisions, but really great free updates for the last five years. My next uh, Screencast Online tutorial will actually be an update that talks about some of the new things they've implemented in the last five years at no extra cost. Okay, let's get into the interesting examples, and I'll do each one, of course, as a problem to be solved. Every episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond you hear, uh, that you hear means I've recorded my voice and my partner's voice from an, a voiceover IP service, such as Skype or Discord. The first time Dr. Gary came to visit and we decided to record together, I tried to get her to go into Steve's den and let me call her over Skype so I could record with my existing session. She asked me, why can't we record in the same room? And I had to confess that I didn't actually know how to do that. I could record with somebody halfway a, a world away in New Zealand or Ireland, but recording someone inside my house, that was beyond my skill set. She insisted I should be able to figure this out. Now, I knew, know at least 12 of you are yelling into your devices right now that if I just had a hardware mixer, this would be easy. Well, I had a mixer at one time, and I didn't like it. I didn't ever understand it particularly well, and it took up a giant area of my desk. I have figured out how to avoid having a mixer by using Audio Hijack, and it turns out to be much easier than I expected. By the way, a future chit-chat across the pond, I'm going to have someone on the show where they're going to try to convince me that a mixer is better than Audio Hijack, so we're kind of going to do a smackdown. Should be fun. I plan to lose. All right, so I can plug two microphones into my Mac pretty easily. If they're both USB, I just need the USB-C adapter, and the hardware's taken care of. Now, I use a big girl mic with an analog XLR connection, so I have to plug my mic into a USB-C, I'm sorry, a USB interface first, but then it's right into the Mac with the USB-C adapter. 
All right, so hardware is sorted. That's all I need to record Marianne in the room with me. In Audio Hijack, you can add as many input sources as you like. Inside the Sources option, we can choose the input device block that looks like a microphone and drag it in twice, one above the other. On the upper one, we'll choose our own mic, and on the lower block, we'll choose the second mic. Now, if you wanted the simplest possible setup, we could then drag in a recorder block from the output options, and we would be done. We would be in business. You could actually record both mics using Audio Hijack in this way. Now, by default, the recorder block is set to 256 kilobits per second stereo MP3. You hit the red button, you're hijacking both mics, and the recording is a high-quality MP3. Now, there's a one problem with that. If you're wearing headphones, and you should, to make sure you don't get feedback into your own mic, you won't be able to hear the other person. There's an easy solution. You simply drag in an output device after your mics and before the recorder and set it to your headphones. To change the recording format, you can tap on the recorder block and then select the pull-down for quality under recording format. In this simplest form, both mics are being recorded on both channels into the stereo file. Because they're both on both channels, you won't be able to fix problems separately by voice. So let's say I start eating some popcorn while Marianne is busy crushing my dreams about how flawed my memory is. I can't go back and cut out my crunching from the recording or it would cut her voice out too. So there's a solution to this problem. Audio Hijack has what's called the channels block under built-in effects. Channels blocks allow you to do a few different things, but I use it to simply kill one channel on each mic. So in the upper track, which is my mic, before, after my mic, but before the recorder, I can tell it a, a channel block to kill the right channel. Now, my audio is only on the left channel in the stereo recording. On the lower track, I do the opposite. I drag in another channel's block and I tell it to kill left. So now I'm on the left and the other person's on the right. Now, as long as Dr. Gary's mic doesn't pick up my popcorn crunching, I can eat away and edit later, which I never do, by the way. Eat while recording or edit my recordings. Okay, now everything's doing what we wanted, right? Oh, sure, but we could make it even better. That recorder set to MP3 would work just fine if this is your final output, but that's a compressed audio format, even though it's pretty high quality. If I'm going to drag this audio into another application and top and tail it with an introduction and an, an outro, I'd be compressing the recording a second time on export, and that's never good if you can avoid it. I select the recorder block and I change it to an uncompressed 16-bit stereo AIFF. So now I've got two high-quality recordings, or one high-quality recording with these two channels. Now, with two people on a recording, you never know if the other person is going to be right up on the mic or if maybe they're going to lean way back like this and get real quiet as a result. I'm looking at you, Marianne. I like to drop in a volume block from the built-in effects onto the other person's track. This lets me to go to 2x volume and then drag the slider back and forth until they're the same volume as me. How do I know they're the same volume? Well, I accomplish that by dragging in a meter from the meters section. I favor the peak RMS meter because I can see the audio bouncing up and down to see if they're on the same level uh, on both of our mics, if uh, my voice and theirs are at the same level. And I will see it turn red if the speaker is hollering into the mic and peaking, which sounds very harsh to the ears, and then I can back it off. Now, I know I said this was the, the least complex of the interesting sessions, and then I added in all kinds of complexity. But remember, you could use Audio Hijack to drag in two mics and a recorder, and you probably have a pretty darn good recording. With these extra tips, maybe it can be even better. And remember, you can download these sessions I've created and use them pretty much out of the box. All you need to do is change the mic inputs and the outputs to match those available on your system, 
and you'll be ready to go. All right, here's the second problem. Let's say you don't have a pesky in-home partner for the recording, and instead you're going to talk to someone on Skype, Discord, Zoom, FaceTime, or any other voice over IP communication method. As before, you might want to record the two sides of the conversation on separate tracks so your voice is on one channel and theirs is on the other. This way, if a dog barks at their house or if you sneeze, you can edit that out without wrecking the other channel. Remember how our in-home example in that one, we killed the right channel for one voice and killed the left channel for the second voice, and that let us record into two separate tracks, one for left and one for right? Well, when you're talking to somebody on a voice over IP call, it's kind of disconcerting to hear them only out of one ear. So when I'm talking to somebody on a VoIP call, I like to add a duplicate channel block on each audio source. This sounds complicated, but for my mic, I can add a duplicate left block followed by a kill right block. Then for the VoIP caller, I do the opposite, adding a duplicate right, then kill left. Now I can hear my caller in stereo and not hear my own voice at all. Again, it sounds kind of complicated, but it does fix a problem. It's very weird to hear somebody out of one year. I don't know why that's so, so bothersome. All right, so just to change it up in the recording session I have available for download, I left the recorder to set to record to a 256 kilobit per second MP3 stereo file. All right, third problem. I recently discovered a really cool service I told you about called otter.ai that transcribes audio into text for free. I wrote an article explaining the otter.ai service at podfeed.com and you heard about it. You can upload an audio file after recording, but they've also got a record button right on the site so you can talk to it real time and have it transcribe what you say. I got to thinking about my slick VoIP call session in Audio Hijack and I wondered, I wonder if there's a way to have otter.ai hear the call real time and create the transcription while I'm also recording. That would save time at the end of the production. Now, this requires the use of Rogamiba's awesome loopback software, which I'm going to be doing also in my next Screencast Online video. And uh, with loopback, it allows you to create a virtual source to use as an input to otter.ai. Then in Audio Hijack, you just add one more output device block and you point it at that virtual source. Then over on otter.ai, you use the virtual source as the input. If you want all of the step-by-step instructions for loopback, audio hijack, and otter.ai, I did a full blog post on that with all of the details over on podfeed.com. All right, next one. This is the most interesting problem I solved with audio hijack. I was going to have author Shelley Brisbane on my show to talk about her book, iOS Access for All. Shelley wanted to demonstrate using voiceover on her iPhone during the interview. I wanted to play along as well with my phone as she explained things. We could have tried to keep our phones close to our microphones so the audience could hear what the phones were saying, but that would have created less than ideal audio. I'm going to walk through the steps we followed to capture the audio directly from our iPhones as secondary sources. In our case, we were listening to voiceover speaking, but you could use this idea for any iOS audio you wanted to send into a VoIP call. Maybe you want to play a song for someone or a podcast. Any audio created by your iOS device will come through to your compatriot. All right, step one. We need to combine our microphone and the iPhone into one output. Imagine for the moment that your only objective was to record your mic and audio from your iPhone. We'll add in the VoIP call later. Audio Hijack allows you to capture audio not just from physical microphones, but also from applications. In our, in our example, the application we want to capture is QuickTime. That might seem like a curious choice, but you'll bear with me. 
Plug in an iOS device to your Mac and launch QuickTime. In the menu bar, if you select File, New Recording, it will default to using your internal microphone as the input. Now here's the cool part. Next to the red record button, there's a little chevron that allows you to choose which mic to use. One of the mic options will actually be your iOS device. I know, it's crazy, right? You can test this right now yourself without using any other tools. Just play some audio on your iPhone or iPad while QuickTime is using it as a microphone and you'll see the little audio levels start bouncing in QuickTime. Next, in Audio Hijack, pull in an application source, click on it, and choose QuickTime Player as the application. Then pull in an input device and choose your microphone. Add an output device and set it to your headphones or speakers. And when you engage Audio Hijack, you should be able to hear the audio from your iOS device and your own voice at the same time. All right, this is great, but we're going to need to pipe this combined audio as an input to our voiceover IP application. We need to create a virtual source to do this, so again, we would use the awesome and easy-to-use software Loopback. In Loopback, the very simplest virtual device is simply a pass-through device, which is all we need. In Audio Hijack, we can add an output device to our QuickTime and microphone chain and select the newly created virtual pass-through as the device. We now have the power to send our voice and the audio coming from iOS anywhere we like, just as though it was a hardware device. All right, that was step one. Step two, we need to add voice over IP to our session. So the first half is done. We're going to create an entirely separate and parallel path in Audio Hijack for Skype. These two paths won't ever even touch each other. They're completely independent, but are created in the same session. We've already gone into great depth on how to work with a voice over IP call, so I'll be a bit more brief in my description of that part. I used Skype as an input block, threw a VU meter block to watch the levels, duplicated the right channel, and sent it out to my speakers, and then added a recorder block. In Skype, I need to set the mic input to pass through so that the person can hear my voice and my iOS device when it's making noise. In this configuration, note that you do have to hit the red button so that the person on the voice over IP call can actually hear you and your iOS device. In my example with Shelly and me both wanting to send our iPhone audio to the call, we had one more step. Shelly needed to have an identical setup on her end. Of course, she's an avid Audio Hijack fan and she had the skills to create the session, but we didn't need to have her do all that work. I simply sent her my session by dragging and dropping it into messages. She opened it in her copy of Audio Hijack and then changed the mic input and output to match her devices. As soon as we both engaged our copies of Audio Hijack, we could both hear each other's voices and our iOS devices as voiceover jabbered away. And of course, all of that went right into, our, into the recording. I created a tutorial back when I figured this out, but it was before Loopback existed. I was using an application called Soundflower, which is no longer supported. I do highly recommend Loopback, but if you're funding restricted, you might want to check out the open source replacement for Soundflower called Black Hole. It's on GitHub. I couldn't figure it out in the short time I spent with it, but maybe you're more clever than me. In any case, even though my tutorial references Soundflower, I think the settings for the blocks will help, so I've included a link to the tutorial in the show notes. So the bottom line is, it's highly probable you may never need to solve the exact same problems I had to solve, but my hope is that this helps stimulate ideas of problems you could solve with Audio Hijack. I'd sure like to hear about it if you come up with some interesting Audio Hijack sessions. And don't forget, like I said at the beginning, you can download all of the sessions I described here so you don't have to recreate them in your copy of Audio Hijack. All right, let's have a listen to good friend of ours and Nosilla Castaway, Ed Tobias, in his review of SketchUp. 
At the end of 2019, I took up woodworking. It is something I've always been interested in doing, and now that I'm retired, I have time to explore such things. I watched several YouTube videos of people teaching how to make things. They're called makers. I've learned lots of tidbits and techniques on how to use woodworking tools to build all sorts of things. After stumbling around and making a few items that were really simple, I got the hang of it and wanted to tackle something more complex. I noticed that all the people on YouTube that were doing complex builds were planning it out first using a 3D modeling program called SketchUp. I had tried other 3D programs before and found them to be cumbersome, difficult to master, and not providing a lot of benefit for all the hard work required to learn them. So as a result, I avoided learning SketchUp. Then things changed in the world and I found I had much more time on my hands. So I thought, why not learn something while I'm stuck inside? One of my favorite makers on YouTube was a young woman from Texas, April Wilkerson at wilkerdoos.com. She has a two-part tutorial on SketchUp that makes it pretty simple to learn. I'll ask Allison to put a link to the tutorials in the blog post. I found SketchUp to be quite easy to use if you first master the fundamentals of the tutorial. First off, you really need a three-button scroll mouse to use the tool. I've tried it with a trackpad and it results in utter frustration. The basic way that you create 3D objects in SketchUp is to first create a 2D shape and then extend it in the third dimension. All mouse actions are a click and release to start creating the object and then move the mouse and click to finish. This is very counterintuitive since most of us have been taught since birth to click and drag. I still find myself doing that now and then when I use the tool. In the bottom right corner of the screen is an area where dimensions are shown. This is where you can set the size of your objects, but you must do that before you start to draw another object. So as an example, I want to draw a rectangle that is 24 inches by 36 inches. I would select the rectangle tool and click and release at the starting point where I want the rectangle to begin. Then I move the mouse in the direction that I want the rectangle to grow. And at this point, I can click a second time to finish the rectangle or not. It doesn't matter. Before starting another rectangle though, I type 24, 36 on the keyboard and hit return. There is no need to click in the dimensions box on the screen first. If I change my mind and want it 36 inches by 24 inches because I can't tell my X from my Y, I just type 36 comma 24 and hit return again and the size changes. You can keep changing the size until you start another rectangle. Once you have the rectangle the size you want, you can add the third dimension. You select the rectangle by clicking on it and using the push-pull tool, click the center of the rectangle and move the mouse up or down to make it 3D. As with the 2D rectangle, you can set the size of the third dimension by typing it and hitting return. Once you make the three-dimensional object, each piece of it is individual. The sides, the lines that make up the edges, etc. So if you try to move the shape, you'll likely pull the shape apart. I've done this more times than I can count. Just remember, undo is your friend. To avoid this from happening, you select the whole shape by triple clicking it and then right click and select Make Component. This puts a bubble around it, making it act as a single object. You can then triple click it again at any time should you need to edit the shape further.
By the way, to switch to the Select tool quickly, just hit the spacebar. Using the Move tool, you can move the shape to another location, and if you hold down the Option key while you move the object, it creates a duplicate and leaves the original where it is. The duplicate is a related component to the original. That means if you edit the original, like make it bigger, the duplicate gets the same changes simultaneously. If you don't want this to happen, you can right-click on the duplicate and select Make Unique. To move around the workspace, you can orbit, pan, and zoom. This is done with the scroll wheel button. Scrolling the wheel zooms in and out. Clicking the wheel and moving the mouse will orbit your perspective around the point where the mouse is located. To pan, you do the same thing as orbit, but hold down the shift key as well. Once you do it a few times, it becomes intuitive. SketchUp's power lies in the ability to precisely reference your objects. As you draw shapes, they will naturally snap to be parallel to one of the three axes. And when you move an object to be next to another, you can grab the corner of the object and snap it to the corner of the other object you're making everything to make everything line up perfectly. You can also use a tape measure tool to create guidelines that you can use to precisely locate objects. It's hard to describe just how useful this is, but if you watch the tutorials, you'll get it. SketchUp is free to use if you use the web-based version and don't need more than 10 gigabytes on their cloud. If you want unlimited storage with the web-based version, it will run you $119 a year. And if you prefer the desktop app, they have SketchUp Pro for $2.99 a year. So far, the web-based free version is just fine for me. I have made a couple of fairly complex designs with SketchUp, and it didn't take me very long at all. As for how it helps, I have discovered several times where my pieces wouldn't fit together, and it didn't waste any wood finding out. I would recommend SketchUp for anyone who needs to do 3D modeling, but make sure that you watch the tutorials first. That's it for now. Time to head back to the shop. All right, Ed. Well, uh, I've got some woodworking projects I need to get started working on. And uh, I really do need to give SketchUp another spin. I did a lot of 3D modeling in my early engineering days, so uh, I'm pretty familiar with how those tools work. I gave a quick shot at playing with SketchUp and it was confusing again, but of course I didn't follow your uh, suggestion and watch any videos. So maybe I'll uh, try to get some time to do that. Looks like fun. In my engineering curriculum, I took classes in two programming languages. In my freshman year of undergraduate work, I took a class in BASIC, and then I took Fortran 4 with Watt 5 in grad school. I got my master's in mechanical engineering in 1982, and that is the last time I programmed. Right before I retired in 2013, I talked to my friend Kiran at work about how one of my goals in retirement was to learn to program for real. I asked him if he'd teach me, and he said, nope, but he could recommend a book. That wasn't exactly what I was looking for. I mentioned my dream of learning to program to Bart Bouchotts, and on October 23rd, 2015, Bart Bouchotts started a podcast series with me called Programming by Stealth. As Bart explained in his introductory episode, he wasn't going to teach us a language, he was going to teach us to program. He said that to be a programmer, it's important to understand the fundamentals so you can learn to apply them to all different languages. He took the approach of sneaking up on us with the tools, hence by stealth, in the title of the podcast. He decided not to teach us anything that wasn't transportable across platforms, so everything he's teaching us is for Mac, Windows, and Linux users. The most universal place in the world is the web, so we're learning to write programs for the web. 
As we've gone through the lessons, there have been some really easy parts for me and some terrifically difficult sections. I've discovered that when the results are visual, I enjoy the assignments immensely. When the results are abstract, not so much. When we've been deep in the hard parts, I remember what Dr. Marianne Gary, the psychology professor out of the University of Waikato in New Zealand, told us in Chit Chat Across the Pond. She said that research suggests that learning to do something that's very difficult for you and mastering it is correlated with reduction in the chance of dementia. My family is riddled with Alzheimer's, so I need just about every advantage I can get. Whenever it's been really difficult to grasp a programming concept and I want to lay my head on the desk in frustration, I remember what Marianne said. She said it's supposed to be hard or it won't be effective. Partway through the series, I asked Bart how I could possibly hope to remember what he was teaching us. His answer was practice. I asked him, when am I supposed to get that practice? There was this stunned realization on both of our parts that we were missing a fundamental part of learning. We didn't have homework. I asked him if he would please give us challenges every week. I'm sure everyone else in class felt that I was teacher's pet and were annoyed with me, but I think the idea was critical to our success. We've been at this Programming by Stealth thing for 92 episodes, maybe it's 93 by now, and the format continues to evolve. In some of the earlier episodes, we had incredibly complex homework due in just two weeks. It's a bi-weekly show. I often didn't get it done, even with the help of my dear friend Dorothy, also known as Mac Lurker in the chat room, who was basically my teaching assistant. I never felt like I'd got a chance to master what I was supposed to be learning. Somewhere along the line, Bart suggested that we have an extra two weeks on a particular assignment. It was glorious. I got to finish my assignment. Since then, we work on a schedule where we learn new things each week, but in the background, we've got long-term assignments. I'm liking this much better because I really get a chance to dig in and try a lot of different solutions until I get my ideas working. One of the things Bart has been banging into our heads is that he doesn't want to spoon feed us all of the information. Rather, he wants to teach us to be able to read documentation so we can stand on our own two feet. I remember when I was working on a little web app number guessing game we designed, and all on my own, I found a library online that would let me make a changing pie chart for representing the guesses that had been made. Bart was quite pleased because it proved that we were starting to be able to work independently instead of just following directions. In a more recent assignment to do currency conversion, I found a library to make my table data more interesting. I had to read a lot of documentation that was written very differently from what I'd read before took a lot of effort to get it to actually function the way I wanted. Dorothy and Helma both helped me along the way, of course. In the end, it works pretty well, except on mobile, which leaves me lying awake at night. My current assignment is simply glorious. Bart asked us to make a, a clock, but he gave us very few requirements. All he told us was we had to allow the user to decide whether they wanted to see a 12 or 24-hour clock and whether to show the second hands. The user should also be able to choose a time zone and whether they want to have separate time separators pulse. That's it. No other rules. He did suggest a couple of libraries that would be quite helpful in this quest, moment.js and moment-timezone.js, but we didn't have to use them. I am loving this assignment for so many reasons. I love knowing that every person's solution will be different. I love that I get to be creative in how I lay out on, do my layout on the page and how the user will interact with it. I'm writing all of the code from scratch, but each new app I'm writing gets a new chance to be better than the last. Bart recently revealed his solution to the currency conversion challenge, and I spent some time looking at his code. I didn't follow it entirely, but it was beautiful. It was structured and elegant and crisp. 
Bart made a point of telling us that he actually spent a lot of time refactoring his code to make it this elegant. He told us that it had grown like the Weasley house in Harry Potter, and he had to take it all apart and rebuild it to make it this elegant. When I started on the new clock assignment, I set a goal of making my code elegant and organized as well. I've got the first half of the assignment functioning pretty well now. I sent a Bart a note to show off to him, and I said the most pleasing part to me is that my JavaScript code is only 66 lines long, including comments, and that it's clean and beautiful. He wrote back words to me that warmed my heart, and I saved a screenshot of it. It made me so happy. He said, don't ever let anyone tell you you're not a programmer. Only a programmer can see beauty and elegance in code. Isn't that fabulous? Anyway, uh, I'm excited to use these new encapsulation tools that he just told us about this week because I think it's going to get even tighter and cleaner. Now, entitled this article I'm telling you about right now, Programming is My Happy Place. I called it that because it is the one place I can get away from it all right now. I open up my iPad to Notability and I scribble pseudocode with my Apple Pencil and I design the user interface and I think about how the logic will work. Then I open up my code editor, Visual Studio Code, that fellow student Caleb Fong told me about, and Source Tree for my source control that Helma told me about, and I get going on writing code. I can sit for hours and hours and hours until my legs fall asleep in this happy place. For some reason, I'm most comfortable with my legs crisscrossed under me in a desk chair. I keep Telegram at the ready in case I need to ask Dorothy questions, which I'm sure she appreciates. Sometimes I have playdates with her or Helma in Skype to look at my code and help me figure out where I've gone wrong. I've gone wrong. I'm happy programming, truly happy. And I never saw that coming. It's almost as though it happened by stealth. In the last couple of weeks, I put out a plea to the Nocilla Castaways to stop their contributions to the Podfeed podcast if they can't afford it right now. I wanted to make sure people know that it's not only fine, but I also want them to do that. An odd thing, is a, an odd thing has happened as a result. So many people have started to jump in to fill the gap. Marty uh, Gentius became a patron through Patreon. Then Scott Gould gave a one-time donation through PayPal. And then John Atwood, who is already a patron, increased his patronage. I can't believe all of you folks did this. I think the best part is knowing that you get value out of the show and have decided to help offset the cost of producing it. Whether you use Patreon, PayPal, or create a review for the show, all of you rock. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. And before I say hello to Bart, I would like to point out to the audience that we have a significant Skype lag. Apparently, everybody's using the internet right now. So uh, if you hear us stomp on each other, we know that we're stomping on each other and we can't not stomp on each other. With that introduction, Bart, how are you doing today? I am doing just fine. And yeah, thank you for setting that up because that way it doesn't sound like we're being rude. We're, we're just making do with the best we can with the poor internet having to digest a lot <laughs> definitely definitely all right where are we starting today on our security bits uh well let's start with a little bit of follow-up so we've talked before about cloudflare's warp vpn i i believe it first entered beta on ios and i think i remember you playing with it um i'm not sure about that I, I did put it on and I it confused me and did some weird things and I turned it off and I made a mental note to ask you about how it's supposed to work and then I completely forgot about it. How's that? 
Okay, well, it's evolving. Um, so it, they were doing a DNS only thing, and then they were doing so. Anyway, they now have a full VPN, uh, which is entering beta for Mac and Windows. And what's exciting about it is that it's one of the first implementations of a new, extremely promising open source VPN protocol called WireGuard. And hmm. so WireGuard is, yeah, it's sort of designed from the ground up to be a VPN, whereas like a lot of the stuff is over SSL and stuff like that. And that's not really that efficient. So this is a really efficient, modern, cut down to the bare essentials uh, VPN protocol. And it has just gone 1.0. And it's just been put into the Linux kernel as part of the standard Linux kernel. So we're going to have WireGuard supported by all servers that are running a modern version of Linux. So this really is the future of VPNs, and Warp is just one of the first to market. So Warp is the offering from Cloudflare, and Warp uses WireGuard? Bingo. Okay, okay. So... um. I was curious how it was supposed to work on the iPhone. It seemed to be kicking in all the time, and I didn't have a way to say, no, trust this network connection that I could find, but maybe I just wasn't trying hard enough. It may not have done that feature. It may simply have said, oh, you want me on? Okay, I'll be on. Um, I, I didn't install it because I think it was only Americans were allowed into the beta. Okay. I didn't know I was in a beta. It just sort of showed up. I might very probably because that sounds like me, but I just didn't realize I was in a beta. Um, deep dive then, I think is probably the place we should go next. And this is a big one and it's extremely apropos of everything at the moment. Um, so I've called it to zoom or not to zoom. Uh, and <laughs> this, this was by my a... special request that we were doing this one, right? But well, I was going to do it anyway. Be yeah. Okay, I'll put it to you this way. When I went to my RSS feed to prepare the show notes, there were 100 items in the feed. When I removed the Zoom items, there were 50. It was <laughs> half okay. the news. <laughs> okay, but technically I had sent you uh, a list of links of uh, things that I thought were interesting uh, like three or four days before that. So I, I'm still taking credit. Even though maybe it was completely well, obvious. Oh, I mean, I had been collecting the links too, right? Because I, I don't collect them at the last minute. I collect them as I go. So every morning I read the security news and I flag stuff for the show. And then at the end of the two weeks, all I have to, all I have to do, he says, all I have to do is go through all of the collected links and pick out the ones where they're talking about and group them into stories and stuff. But yeah, this was going right, to be a topic get on it for then. us because, yeah. Now, normally in a deep dive... Um, what I have to do is give you all the technical stuff, and it, that in this case, that would have been really hard because there were so many stories. Thankfully, Glenn Fleischman at Tidbits has done all that heavy lifting, so I'm just going to link to him and say, if you want the list of all of the problems and a good, a really good description, he's written very human-friendly descriptions of what it was, how how uh, Zoom responded, and really, really importantly, all of the sections end with, what should I do? And some of them say nothing. Some of them say, make sure you're up to date. And some of them give you way more detailed instructions of how you should set up meetings to keep yourself safe and so forth. So it's really practical. And I think what gives it great value is that Glenn has done the work to understand all the problems and he has concluded that for him, he's going to continue to use 
Zoom, but he's going to take certain actions to protect himself. So if if you're coming to the same conclusion, then it's really handy to have the list of, here's what I do. And so I, I think it's very valuable. Yeah, uh, you sent me that, and uh, I read the whole thing. It is very, very long, but if you want to really understand uh, what what the the problems are and what his uh, suggested solutions are, whether you need to do something about it or how much you should light your hair on fire about it, I think it's a really good article. Um, we didn't actually set this up, just in case there's somebody who doesn't know what this is. Um, I, I, w- I was hoping you would say that Zoom is a video teleconferencing service uh, that has basically taken the world by storm. Everybody's using it. And I was really resistant to starting to look at Zoom because of the things that they had done in the past. And and Glenn doesn't talk about those, but mm. these are the guys that installed a web server on your Mac. And then when they were caught doing that, their uninstaller didn't remove the web server. And they did that because they said, oh, well, it's really cool because if you get a link from somebody from Zoom, it can auto-install the application for you, which obviously is not what pretty much anybody listening to this show would want to have happen. So they kind of really were at a negative five points to start with. And then there's been this series of uh, security things, privacy things, um, I, I would call some of them uh, really misleading in their marketing materials. And I think you'll probably uh, maybe get into that. But uh, it's, I don't see it in the show notes, but one of the things they did was they claimed end-to-end encryption and it's not end-to-end encrypted. It's their own little definition of end-to-end, which is not everybody else's definition. So they they certainly give me pause, but the article did show that maybe they're starting to learn a lesson, is what I would say. A small correction, the article actually starts. The first issue it describes is a tiny macOS web server and automatic reinstallation in mid-2019. So he actually does lay that one out for people too. Okay, keep going. No, we're, we're, sorry, the lag I, is it's really hard here. with the lag. To- yes. Um, and that's why I talked so continuously I? was to, to let you know that uh, that there was I was going to just keep going because if you tried to jump in, we would never get done. So now I'm handing the, the baton back lag is yours, Bart. <laughs> Thank you. I have the conch. I mean, I speak. <laughs> so I, I think for, so I, I don't really want to go over the, too much of the technical stuff because I think Glenn lays it out so well. But basically, it sort of falls into the category of whoopsie, we're humans, we made some programming mistakes, so there were some traditional flaws, right? And I guess we should give them credit where credit is due, that they have been very quick to fix those kind of simple bugs, which is good. Then they fall into another category of sort of really bad decisions, where they've just, they have decided to prioritize convenience over security or they've decided to prioritize the possibility of one day becoming a data company instead of a video services company over privacy. And sometimes it's just lack of forethought. They've just, I would guess, rushed into things without thinking it through. And the end result is that their encryption algorithm has major gaping holes in it in terms of its design. They've had some clangers of bugs they've had to patch. And they have some serious privacy problems they're still wrestling with. Probably a fair summary of how we've ended up here. And well, like there, you, there's one more piece I, I would add into that was that um, things like they they had set up uh, Facebook integration and were sending data to Facebook. <clears throat> 
excuse me, whether or not you had a Facebook account. And they have since then removed that. So, I mean, they did remove it, but it's like, well, why were you doing that in the first place without telling us? Again, it's, that one is, I think, transparency. But that gets back to what you were saying about them wanting to be a data company later. Yeah. The, the word, so my, I would like you, right? You started off at minus five, which is a great description because last summer when they messed up with that, messed up massively with that web server, I, I was extremely negative about them and I have been actively boycotting them. And to be honest, I'm not changing my mind, but that's me. And I don't think everyone should do what I do. I think everyone should make up their own mind. Um, and so, yeah, so like you, I was extremely negative, but I'm less negative now. Um, and I think the word that Fleischman uses is probably the right word. He he describes them as careless. And that's probably more accurate because I'm not sure they're malicious. I think they're careless and they've certainly prioritized things poorly. Hmm. Um, and the other thing I have in okay. my notes that I want to draw attention to is that they have announced a 90-day freeze of new features so they can focus on security patches and addressing the myriad privacy concerns. So that at least is a, that's a good reaction, right? Last summer, they were really defensive and refused to accept they'd done anything wrong and they were defending their bad decisions. Now they're saying, we're terribly sorry, we've messed up and we're taking a 90-day pause to fix things. That's a very different answer to here's problems with your service. So that that's, I like that better. Um, But yeah. One thing I would really like to say is that they're learning from their mistakes, but I think they're learning more because of some of the pressure that's been put on them. Uh, the New York State, uh, I think it was the Attorney General, was uh, asking for some specific investigations into their privacy policies, and then the FBI issued a warning against them. And I don't think either of those were in the article, unless you correct me and tell me that they were. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like, sure, with, the, you know, with a gun to their head, they're, they're doing better now. So they still don't win to me. But I think you put it well to me when you and I were just chatting on the side uh, yesterday was that what is Bart would suggest is that you look at the value you get out of it versus what you're giving up and see whether it's worth it to you. Um, I have tried to do uh, group FaceTimes with my family and with my friends, and FaceTime falls over in a heap on a group FaceTime. I mean, it's it was terrible. People's video was dropping out to some people, not to other people, breaking up. It, and in every time that we've tried to do it, it looked awful. We did a Zoom meeting with four people, uh, you know, four separate uh, cameras, and it was perfect the entire time. And then I watched my daughter do one with her extended family with, I think there were 12, and it was perfect video the entire time. So if what you need right now is to connect to your family and friends through video, Zoom is the game in town for that. And But read the, read the article, though, because it'll really let you know how to set things, what to worry about, what to not freak out about. And to, like yeah, a lot of the video stuff is fine for two or three, but very few of them can handle 12. Or, you know, or yeah. more. Yeah. But uh, I, I, actually, can't even before do I go in three or four, it, it's terrible. <laughs> it's just awful. It was, yeah, it was practically unusable. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I don't really have much experience with FaceTime other than one to one, where it actually does quite well. Um, mm -hmm. And I know with my work hat on that if you're a corporation and you have Microsoft Teams, which is very much a corporate product, it handles large groups, 20, 30, 40 people very well too. But that's no use to you as a family. Oh yeah, if I were a corporation, I could have a great service. So? 
you know, where Zoom <laughs> is there for people. That, that's yeah. important. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of these concerns are maybe more important if you're doing, a lot of companies are using Zoom. So if you're doing things that you really, really, truly do not want to escape out onto the internet, you might want to really pay attention to this article. If you're just, you know, showing your baby to your, to your, the baby's grandma or great grandma, you know, if, if that's fine, that's fine. You know, it, it, it does depend on who you are and what you're sharing. Very, very much so. Yeah. Um, I actually want to go into the pros and the cons in a minute, but before I do that, there's one thing I noticed from my show notes I skipped over that I think is worth mentioning. So I'm always fixated on where the money is, right? Because you follow the money and you understand what's motivating the business. Whether or not they are good at following through on their motivations is different to what their motivations are. And one of the things I like about Zoom is that their business model is freemium, right? They make their money by selling a product to corporations. Uh, So the reason they have a free tier is to entice people into becoming paid members. It's the fact that they tried to keep the back door open to have a second business model that has really let them down. The fact that they wanted to have their proverbial cake and eat it too. But they do mm. have a freemium model rather than a freepie model. And that is at least something. So if they've given up on becoming a data company and are going to commit to being a video service, then their business model is good. Okay. Okay. I see the distinction there. So, right. So you've already done a pretty good job, I think, of laying out the value, right? Why is Zoom taking off? It's not an accident, right? Ironically, one of the reasons they've had so many security problems is because they are obsessed with making their service easy to use. They're obsessed with making it easy to start a meeting and even easier to join a meeting. And while they have done some really stupid things towards that very laudable goal, it is nonetheless a very laudable goal And it has resulted in an app that people who are not geeks are comfortable using. So that's definitely one of the reasons that it's taken off. And the other is what you've explained so well. It actually works. You have a big group of people. You can actually have a virtual wine party, a virtual baby shower, a virtual evening together with friends. It works. And we have to keep our physical distance and it's really horrible. But this tool allows you to be socially close and physically distant. So, of course, it has huge value. And I, I, I don't think we can, I think we have to accept how valuable it is. Let me, let me break in here with an anecdotal example of how easy it is. Um, my friend Diane and her husband Bill go to see Bill's father every single Sunday. And obviously, they can't go see him. He's, I think he's 95. I think he just, it's either 90 or 95. And he got on a Zoom meeting by himself. Now, it took him a couple of weeks to get to figure it out on his own and with, you know, phone calls and people helping him and everything. But this last Sunday, he got on all by himself. So and this is not a guy who grew up with any kind of technology and is not particularly, you know, he does email and that's about it. So mm. that that's a testimonial, I think. Wow. Yeah, that that speaks absolute volumes. That, that, yeah, that, that underlines it perfectly. So to me, then the question becomes, OK, so I don't think people should not use Zoom. I think everyone should make an informed decision before they use Zoom. So I think it's important that people take the time to inform themselves. And then whatever decision you make, you're going to choose whether the value outweighs the risks. And I am not going to judge you for the decision you make. And I don't think anyone should. All I ask is please do so understanding the risks. 
Uh, and also, I think it's important that you are prepared to take the steps as described in the article. At the moment, the defaults are not in a way that keeps you safe. So you need to take a few extra steps from the defaults. And maybe after these 90 days where they're reconsidering things, maybe after these 90 days, the defaults will all be good. But for now, when you're setting up a meeting, you have to tick some boxes and you have to do some twiddling about and stuff. So it's, the instructions are there. They're not onerous. It's not hard, though. you do need to take, yeah, a little bit of effort. So you've explained the value. Uh, so I think I sort of want to underline what I think are the biggest dangers. Um, so the first thing I would point out is, looking at the whole list of what's happened the last two weeks, I, I think it's reasonable to infer that years of sloppy programming has resulted in a code base that's quite littered with bugs. So any bug that's found, they're patching quickly. But just this week, there's been so many of them found. It seems unlikely to me that we're done with this. It seems like with Adobe Flash <laughs> over the years. I think there's more to come. Their technical debt is not paid off yet. So I think if you install their app, you probably have security bugs that aren't known about yet. And hopefully they'll keep patching them quickly. But that is a danger. And so you need to be aware of that. The other one we've already mentioned is that their encryption sucks. So, I mean, they call it end-to-end. -end. It's not by a reasonable definition of end-to-end. -end. Um, and it's also, they have chosen poorly in terms of some of their design decisions and some of their algorithmic decisions for the cryptography itself. So if you are the kind of person who is at risk of being spied on, if you're a reporter, an activist, a campaigner, a political leader, or if you work for the kind of corporation that's likely to be the subject of industrial espionage, especially if you are afraid of being spied on from China, because a whole bunch of Zoom's traffic got apparently accidentally routed through servers in China where it was decrypted. So that's Apparently that was by mistake and they were only supposed to be routing the Chinese traffic and they accidentally routed more traffic. But again, if I was Intel or someone who was afraid of having my very, very high-end design stolen, I would not be allowing my employees to use Zoom. And if I was, so, you know, Mark, some sort of political campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, on on the, the Chinese server thing, I never heard anything about by mistake. I didn't read that in Glenn's article. It sounded like, yeah, and they do this. <laughs> but it didn't say, oops. I, I the, the story keeps changing. So I think Glenn's article is two days old, which means it may be missing a few pieces of information. But they they posted a blog post on their own website where they basically give their side of the story and they say that some of the bad decisions were oopsies. Okay. Not everyone's buying it. Not everyone's buying it, right? <laughs> um, John Gruber is particularly skeptical. Um, so I think you'll appreciate are, one of John Gruber's. Your choices are stupid, nefarious, or uh, accident. I don't know. Which, <laughs> which do you want? Well, sloppy. Sloppy has to be one of your choices. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sloppy. I forgot that one. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> You're say I, know, Gruber I know, I know. saying? Yeah, so uh, you will love one of Gruber's headlines. The S in Zoom stands for security. <laughs> A classic. Stolen. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, that, it's a meme was, at this that, stage, that but I, I thought it was... With, yeah, that's good. Um, and then the final... So, okay, so we've already said sloppy coding, there are almost certainly more bugs. We've already said the encryption sucks. The last danger I see is that there is a, a, there's a second type of sloppiness. It's It's not that they're making technical low-level coding mistakes resulting in bugs is that they're making poor choices resulting in more information going to more people than they had probably intended and resulting in compromised privacy that really wasn't by design it's just by sloppiness and the, the ultimate example of this is they have a feature where the system assumes that if your email address ends with the same bit after the at as someone else's, that you must know each other and that it's okay to share information between your accounts. And they have a sort of a blacklist of known providers like Gmail and stuff to cover off the really low-hanging fruit. But that's still not a viable assumption because there are, you know, while they have this big stuff like AOL covered in the States, they're missing ISPs in other countries. I mean, they have no idea that aircom.net is an Irish ISP and that therefore they should not do that for at aircom.net email addresses. And if you have a large organization like a university, it's not okay to automatically share every student's information with each other just because <laughs> they happen to be at the same student domain within a university. So that is just a, sh a design that made perfect sense if you live in a world where everyone is a corporation. It's not a design that makes sense in the real world. They just didn't think it through. I don't think that even makes sense where everybody's a corporation, Bart. I mean, I worked in a corporation of, of 60,000 people. It would not be okay for everybody within that 60,000 person company to see what every other person could was doing. Not at all. Okay, so it's not quite everything they're doing. It's it's basically their their like their address book entry, so their email address and their job title and stuff like that leaks out. So it's a bit like the global address book in Exchange, which I think is what they modeled it on, to be honest. But again, they're think they're just not thinking things through sometimes, and that's dangerous when a company doesn't think through the consequences. Sloppy. Yep. Yep, sloppy. So the last thing I have in my show notes is just uh, a collection of posts uh, by people laying out alternatives. Now, I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head that for large groups of people, I, I am not aware of a an alternative that works for regular folks. So if it's one-to-one, -one, I think there's plenty of alternatives. And maybe, maybe a group of three or four, you might get away with the alternatives. But if you've got 12 people you want to get in a room, I'm not sure any of the alternatives work but anyway there's links to reviews of alternatives in the show notes one of which is actually by glenn fleischman um which is interesting so have a read so i mean i suppose you could do skype but you immediately lose that easy part yeah I suppose actually there is one thing Skype has going for it it's been around for so long lots of people have it installed anyway so maybe you get to piggyback that way uh, normal people don't, in my experience. I mean, all the nerds do, but not normal people. Okay. And okay. Uh, normal that's people kind didn't of have Zoom either, but it was easy to do. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say that's all I have. It's sort of that in my notes. That was sort of what I thought. What I wanted to say is: is is there anything you want to say to round us out? 
No, my decision will be to continue using it, but I'm going to follow the directions on the... Uh, I did put a password on the meeting that I've set up for our Wine Wednesdays, uh, but I may share it in a different way than uh, based on what Glenn's recommendation was. But I am going to continue to use it because everybody wants to use it, and I want to talk to everybody. So uh, that's my decision, but I, I, I appreciate you not judging me. That was That feels good. Well, I mean, right, the fact that you understand that means I, I don't think there's any danger for you because you're not going to use it to tell people, you know, the, the details of your bank account and stuff. You're just having some fun with friends. And the most important thing is not to get Zoom bombed. And I think following Glenn's instructions will protect you from that. So you're going to be doing something that really isn't assuming privacy. All you just want is not to be disturbed by random a-holes. And you can do that and protect yourself from that. So have fun. Enjoy. Pick a nice wine. All right, good. Okay, so action alerts. This is the bit where everyone should pay as much attention as possible and you can go back to sleep in a minute. Um, Apple have patched, well, everything, pretty much. Mac OS, including older versions, back as far as High Sierra, iOS, HomePod, TVOS, WatchOS, all all patchy, patchy, patch, patch, um, including Safari, we'll talk about in a sec. Um, But I, so everyone should patch didn't didn't we just have updates? I mean, didn't we just do that really, really recently? I believe so, but that was a three point something. This is now we've now sort of gone to bigger point releases. I think the biggest one is actually iOS thirteen point four, which, as well as being security, was a big feature update actually, including at long, long last iCloud folder sharing. You know, you promised us that last summer, Apple. About bloody time. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, iOS 13.4 came out a little bit too soon because a few days after it came out, a bug was announced in not just iOS 13.4, but actually older, for it goes back further than that. There's a bug in Apple's implementation of all VPNs. So it's basically the API for VPNs. It doesn't matter who your provider is. The bug is in iOS, not in the, the VPN service that iOS is using. What's supposed to happen when you start a VPN connection is that all existing connections are terminated and then re-established through the VPN so that they become encrypted. So they weren't encrypted because there was no VPN when they started communicating. You then turn on the VPN. That should interrupt the communication, force it to re-establish through the VPN, and then carry on where it left off. That bit's missing. So in iOS, when you turn on a VPN, everything new from that moment in time is rooted through the VPN as it should be. But a whole bunch of pre-existing stuff stays outside the VPN. So what you have is a leaky VPN. And one of the things that stays outside the VPN is the the persistent connection for push notifications from Apple. And that's not one that you really want floating about. You want that through the VPN. So, oops. That's good they fixed that. I I remember hearing about that when that came no. out, but that's good. No, no, I, I'm sorry to say, Alison, they haven't fixed it. That bug was released just oh. after iOS 13.4. Wait a minute, so, no, I heard about that bug more than a week ago. I, I think iOS 13.4 is more than a week old now. It's it, it The bug and iOS 13.4 were like a day or two apart. Hmm. 
I, I remember this from, I don't know, seemed like a long time ago. When did 13.4 come out? Uh, just checking the date now. The date on the story is the 30th of March. Remember, it's been two weeks since we spoke. Right. Hmm. Okay, we'll keep going. I can't prove I'm right, but um, I remember that. Okay, I'll give you the first line of the story. It's less than a week since Apple's iOS 13.4 appeared, and already researchers have discovered a bug that puts at risk the privacy of VPNs. Anyway, the point okay. is you can protect yourself. That's that's the bit I wanted to get to. The bit I wanted to get to is that there is protection. It's just not as obvious as it might seem. The protection is you turn on the VPN, then you turn on airplane mode, then you turn off airplane mode. And that causes every connection that's open to be killed and then reestablish through the VPN. So it's if you're if you're worried you can do the little dance um and that will take care of it for you. But yeah, Apple should patch it and that'll be much better, please. Good news. Safari 13.1 is in this slew of updates and they have beefed up intelligent tracking prevention and they have moved to simply blocking all third party cookies by default and this removes a danger that there was so a few weeks ago we talked about intelligent tracking prevention being able to be used to track people because they were allowing some third party cookies and if you could sense which cookies were and which cookies weren't allowed you had a fingerprint which acted as as a permanent way of recognizing people because everyone's pattern would be unique and now that's gone. So that problem with intelligent tracking prevention making you trackable has been killed in the most easy way possible. All third-party cookies are now exterminated. And it has also killed a whole class of bug called cross-site request forgeries, which are extremely dangerous. So this is just Apple taking it to the next level. Um, it's It's good to see them take the lead. That is crazy to think third-party cookies are over. I know, I know. Good crazy. Um, yeah. The next one then is Adobe have, have released an emergency out-of-band patch for a nasty, nasty vulnerability in Creative Cloud that allows a remote attacker to delete files on victims' computers. That is one you definitely want patched. You don't want randomers on the internet being able to nuke your photos and things. So to Similarly, be specific, most, Creative Cloud is the uh, is the photography stuff. Not you're not talking about uh, Acrobat or anything like that. There, yeah. So their photography, video, uh, it probably includes InDesign. It, it's basically not the not the PDF stuff. So not Acrobat Reader, uh, Writer, etc. Okay. Mozilla have also released a critical fix. Uh, it patches a zero day in Firefox, and we don't normally mention every Firefox update, but this one I am mentioning because it fixes a zero day being actively exploited. So this is not one to sit on. If you're a Firefox user, turn it off and turn it on again, and it will auto-update itself in the act of being turned off and turned on again. Um, and Wait, what do you mean by keep turn an it eye off? Out, as in quit the app so that it has a chance to apply its updates. Okay, that's, yeah. Yeah, I thought, turn it off. What does turn it off mean? Okay. Sorry, I was making a, a, an IT crowd joke, which I don't think was very helpful. Uh, but yeah, so basically, <laughs> close the browser so it gets to do its auto-update dance. Uh, I would like you to keep an eye for next week's Patch Tuesday, 
Uh, it hasn't happened yet as we record this, but Microsoft have publicly announced that there is a zero day in Windows that is being actively exploited, but not very heavily at the moment. And everyone is expecting that to be patched in Patch Tuesday and then that the exploitation will kick up because once the patch is out, it's easier for attackers to reverse engineer the problem. And so more people will start attacking it. So it's probably the case that this Tuesday's Patch Tuesday is going to be one you want to apply promptly, but no guarantees, just probably. Next up then, critical vulnerabilities found in the OpenWRT uh, open source uh, router firmware. If you're running your own router with OpenWRT, you absolutely need to patch this bug. It's pretty darn nasty. And in a similar vein, there are two extremely nasty bugs in a very popular WordPress plugin uh, called Rank Math, which is for basically optimizing your rank in Google search algorithms and stuff. Very popular plugin, some really, really bad bugs that allow attackers to, if they have an account, make themselves an admin. And if they don't have an account, remove admin privileges from your admin account, locking you out of your own site and destroying <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, you said wait. So I was. No, no, I said yikes. <laughs> Oh, I'm trying sorry, to speak okay. quickly because then like you know me. you can talk again. <laughs> this is working great. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, folks. This is this is a bit like the olden days when you used to watch news reporters going over satellite links to each other and having this horrible lag. Anyway, worthy warnings. Uh, I hate the fact that it is true that every time there's some sort of disaster or crisis, someone out there tries to exploit it to basically prey on our fears or prey on our will to help others in order to extort from us. And I am sorry to say that COVID-19 is exactly the kind of thing that these people, no, they're not people anyway, these individuals um, make use of. So there's all sorts of scams. Um, there's hijacked Twitter accounts being used to advertise face masks. There is... Um, there's scammers targeting home deliveries at the moment. So the idea is almost everyone is ordering stuff online if they can. So if you just send out emails pretending to be about an online delivery, the chances are you're going to reach people who are expecting a delivery and who are therefore primed to click on your email. So don't assume just because someone knows that you're getting an email from Amazon that it really is true. Scammers are out there trying to just assume that if they send out 500 emails, assuming someone's waiting on an Amazon order, it's probably true for five or six at least, if not more. And they're trying to defraud you. So just be careful. And in the United States, the IRS are warning about COVID-19 related scams because there's all sorts of government programs where you can get relief from COVID-19. So if someone pretends to be the IRS, you can see how you can end up in trouble. So just, just be careful because people are there are people who are just nasty, nasty people. And by be careful, that means go directly to the source yourself by typing into your web browser. Do not click links. Even if you think you know who they're from. That is, yes. Yes, that is an extremely important part of being careful. And the other part of being careful is just be skeptical. You know, if you, if you find that it's triggering your emotions... Just double check to make sure that that's not what they're trying to do and that they're not trying to trigger your emotions to make you do something unthinkingly because whatever it is they want you to do unthinkingly, you probably don't want to do. 
And I think your I think your next uh, worthy warning folds directly into how this could happen. It it really does. So Marriott has done it again. They've managed to lose another five point two million records. Um, and this is exactly the kind of data breach that leaves you very vulnerable to phishing attacks because they haven't lost your credit card information. They haven't this time lost your passport details, which they, I believe it was Marriott lost those last time, which was a real privacy concern. But what they have lost is basically everything else Marriott know about you. So if someone wanted to impersonate Marriott hotels at someone, they would know your preferences for, I don't know what Marriott lets you specify in your preferences, but if, like, if you get to choose the type of pillow you want, they will know that kind of information. They will know your customer number. They will know your history. Oh, when you last stayed with us four months ago in Bloody Blah Hotel, the attackers will know that because Marriott have lost all that information. They will know your name. They will know your email address. So they will be able to write an email your mailing that makes address. it look like they know. Your mailing address, your Sorry, phone number, your... your company, your gender, and birthday, day, and month. Yeah, exactly. So just imagine how convincing a phishing email you can construct if you know all of that. So do not believe someone pretending to be Marriott Hotels because it really, really, really could be anyone, no matter how much information they appear to have. Absolutely. Okay, Not- notable news. Um... Security researchers have found yet another way that Android apps are invading users' privacy. So basically, there's an API that apps can use for legitimate reasons to figure out what other apps are installed, but they're being used for illegitimate reasons and basically being used to build up advertising profiles and spy on people. So this is something else Google are going to have to crack down on, but as of right now, they are not cracking down on it yet. One hopes that changes. Uh, a very curious development. Um, so Facebook are in the process of suing the NSO group, who are one of these grey hat companies that sell hacking software to supposedly legitimate governments, although their definition of legitimate government and mine don't always overlap. Uh, Facebook are suing them because they exploited a bug in WhatsApp to spy on people on behalf of their government customers. And as part of the evidence NSO group are entering into the record for that court case they're defending themselves in, uh, they have released details of what they say is Facebook's attempt to purchase their spying software to add to the very ill-fated Onavo VPN Facebook wanted to use to spy on people they were selling security to. So this makes Facebook look blacker hat than this grey hat security company in my book. This is this just like, Onavo stunk from from the moment we heard about it, but this makes it stink even more. Mm. Uh, good news! The iPad Pro that was just announced has all sorts of cool shiny features, but it also has a really nice new security feature. Uh, so on the newer Macs, when you close the lid, there's a physical disconnect on the mic. Well, the new iPad Pros, when you magnetically close a case, it also physically disconnects the mic in these new iPad Pros. That's a wonderful way to bring another laptop feature to the iPads. So I just thought, well done, Apple. Nice to be able to say something nice. So hang on. In in previous models, when you close the lid of an iPad, the mic is not turned off? Not physically disconnected. Okay. So an electrical connection has been severed when when you close it now. 
correct, which means that a software bug can't circumvent that. Okay. Hmm. Also, good news side, there is evidence that Apple's bug bounty program is working as expected. Uh, Apple paid a hacker $75,000 for finding a zero-day exploit that could allow some and allow a remote attacker to hijack someone's phone camera and basically start taking pictures of them. So it was responsibly disclosed, it was fixed, and the guy was paid his 75 grand. So that is how bug bounties are supposed to work, and so it's nice to see that happening. Do we know it was a guy? I believe we do. But okay. now you're making me second you know me, guess me, I don't like to assume. <laughs> well, I'd like, yeah, if we're going to say guy, I like to, uh, I'd like to go with guy. Let's assume, right. let's just assume, <laughs> assume she was a brilliant hacker and carry on. Uh, Google's Threat Analysis Group has released their 2019 report and the headline I kept on seeing everywhere was 40,000 warnings to people who are targeted by state-backed hacking groups, which sounds horrific and it is horrific. But the bit that's getting a lot less play is that's actually down 25% from 2018. So it's bad, but it used to be worse. And the reason it's down, according to the threat analysis group, is because they've added way more layers of security onto the Google products to protect vulnerable people who might be targeted. So I think, although it's a Hmm. scary story, it is nonetheless a good news story. And I like the transparency here. Uh, backing up, it was Ryan Pickering that got uh, paid by Apple. So yes, it was a he. I was about 60% sure it actually was a guy, but I really wasn't prepared to nail my <laughs> colors to the mast on that. I like to go with they just in case. Yes, that is a good point. Uh, the next story is one I don't want to harp on too much, but I do want to highlight for people who want to educate themselves. We are basically, as part of these troubling times we're going through, there are lots of governments around the world playing with using location data for the purposes of combating the pandemic. It is a grey issue that is the greyest shade of grey you could ever possibly imagine. I have some good links in the show notes for people who want to think about it. I don't particularly feel like getting into it here unless you would like me to (laughs) no i i thought you might cue it up and i definitely don't want to but i think this is one of those issues that you could probably sit in a room and argue with yourself for a couple of hours so let's not (laughs) oh yeah the uh, bart one will definitely think this is a great idea and bart two will think this is a horrific idea and bart one and bart two could spend many 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 hours getting nowhere (laughs) Maybe that's what you should do is is, is uh, record yourself having the argument, but I don't get to play. <laughs> Use two different voices uh, or the, accents or something. If I had more time. Anyway, um, you sent me on the next story, which is actually a good news story to do with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is very, very rare. Uh, a court decision has come out on the right side of things, in, in my opinion, and, and I think yours too. Um, the CFA is a an old law i think it's the 80s it dates back to and it's very broad because it was written before we really fully understood what computers were and as well as a law being broad the interpretations of the law have been broad to the point where it's really abused by federal prosecutors and a lot of the times the courts haven't pushed back as hard as i would argue they should have against overbroad application of the CFAA but a court has ruled that violating a site's terms of service is not criminal hacking, 
which is one interpretation you could apply to the CFAA. And if you read the story and you start reading why the judge came to the conclusion, it's extremely, extremely sensible. And I, I just think it's really nice to see to see this this coming into jurisprudence in the United States. So I think it's a very positive development. And that was a federal court in Washington, D.C. So, I mean, I suppose it could be appealed by somebody, but it doesn't seem to fit the, uh, the category of uh, what would be appealed. Uh, I mean... That would be some massive lobbying to do that one. I never put it past them to try to make something like that illegal, but uh, I thought that was good. I would like to back up on one thing. Um, iOS 13.4 came out on March 24th. That bug we were talking about in the VPN came out on March 25th. And my excuse for getting it backwards is I didn't know iOS 13.4 was out. So, <laughs> I mean, I got an update, but I was like, ah, another update. Ah. My my iPad is still upside down and sideways when I turn it on, so I just assumed it hadn't been fixed. But so uh, you were right. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I wasn't right. The, the article was. <laughs> I was just reading. I was just reading out loud. Um, last story. Then ordinarily, I'd be like, "Ooh, this is great news," but it seems so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But anyway, the Federal Communications Commission have been busy. One hopes properly socially distant from each other. Uh, and they have pushed through what everyone was hoping they would, requiring that U.S. phone carriers apply technology for authenticating the source of phone calls, which should really nip robocalls seriously in the bud in the United States, which will probably make a lot of people much more likely to answer the phone around 6 p.m. <laughs> um, I, I saw that article and I was, I was intrigued because... I don't know how they're going to do it. And I don't know that the answer to that question has, has been arrived at and that now they're just saying, yes, you have to. I don't know how they're going to effectively be able to do that. I'm a little little concerned that maybe the solution isn't there yet. Well, there's technology which basically forces, it applies authentication so that you can actually know where a call is coming from. And that technology is called shaken and stirred. And so because they're regulators, the FCC are saying that every carrier who is operating in the United States by June 2021 must implement this technology. So at that point, what you know is that a call is coming from who it appears to be coming from. That doesn't make the robocaller stop, but it makes it be impossible for them to be anonymous at a technical level. And then it becomes a law enforcement issue. Are they breaking the law? So it doesn't end the problem in terms of they just vanish in a puff of smoke but it does make it way harder for them to do things that are not legal because they are now accountable in the I, way I, they or they will become accountable I, I i still don't see how uh that's gonna work because for example i got a phone call the other day from allison sheridan at my phone number and it was a fake microsoft uh, you know your your computer's infected call so that was fully authenticated as me because it was my phone number. So it said it was me. <laughs> it came no, no, that's home, not authenticated. That's, to my home phone. Right, but that's the opposite. That's okay. So shaken and stirred will make it impossible for someone who's not you to appear to be you. So you're saying they can't spoof a phone number ever again if shaken and stirred is used? Bingo. That's, that's the did. problem to be solved. So the technology exists for them to be able to stop spoofing and they won't, they didn't do it before the FCC said they had to? That seems surprising. Yes, because American cell phone, or sorry, American telcos are such nice people. 
No, 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 no. It's not about being nice, Bart. Would If you had a service, would you like to have, say, 40% of the data usage and, and the hammering of your networks be spoofing? No, you would get rid of it if you could. In their own interests, I would think. You would think so. But the, the, the technology has existed and they've just been waiting until they haven't. A, they could have employed it at any moment for the last couple of years. It's not actually that new. It's just that until the FCC said thou must, it just hasn't moved. Okay. It just, it, it, it must be expensive, difficult, technologically re- requires them to buy a bunch of equipment, pay a bunch of people. I don't know. There's got to be some reason they wouldn't have done it because it doesn't make sense not to do it for their own interest. Not because they're nice people. And I know that they, their motivations don't always seem pure to us uh, in their own self-interest. I would have thought they would. Could just be inertia. That makes sense, doesn't it? Eh, inertia with a lot of pressure on their networks. It, I, I, anyway, I mean, we're not in the boardroom, so I can't tell, but I never felt that the Americans' cell phone or carriers were particularly efficiently run organizations. I didn't say they were. I said they were in their, they do things in their own self-interest. <laughs> totally, totally yeah, different. If you're thing. bad at that. Yeah, if you're bad at doing your own self-interest, <laughs> you can end up in these situations, I guess, is sort of my assumption. But anyway, the, the, the point is it's coming, so thank goodness. Uh, last thing I have then, because unfortunately I didn't manage to find any palate cleansers, and I really could have done with some, but I, I didn't. Um, what I do have, though, is I want to I, I wanna highly, highly recommend a good article to have a read of. So... This is by a, a really techie guy who's years of history of writing in the tech industry, Rob Griffiths. And he was the victim of a fraud where he basically got tricked into handing out his bank account details. And in hindsight, he should never have fallen for this because there were red flags all over the place. But he's human and we all make mistakes. So he chose to react with this, not by being very quiet and shameful about it, but by explaining to the world exactly what happened and how someone who's supposed to know better can still end up being caught out because we're all human. It's an extremely well-written post. And even if you don't want to read it all because it's quite long, he has marked out in these brightly highlighted sections with a big red line above and below all the red flags he missed. And they all end with the same sentence. I should have hung up right then. So it's, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. So miss flag number one, you know, I didn't read the, uh, or miss flag number one. I, uh, if it really was a call from first tech, why would, why would they have offered a, sorry, why, if it was really from his bank, they would have offered a callback line or told me to hang up and call the number on the card directly. I should have hung up then. Miss flag two, I did not carefully read the text I received. I should never have read the code to anyone. I should have hung up right then. Dirk asking me to read slower should have clued me into the fact that he was typing it out as I read it back. I should have hung up right oh, then. Geez. And it, it's really, really well done. Oh, that sounds really good. Good lesson to everybody. Well, can I do a palate cleanser? Oh, please, please, please. <laughs> so uh, you guys hear me talk about the SMR podcast all the time. And Chris Ashley of the SMR podcast is one of my favorite human beings on earth and it, included in the list of people I've never met. 
Um, and he was a guest on the Daily Tech News Show with Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane and, and uh, uh, Roger Chang. And uh, in this episode, what they talked about in the so the format of the show is a bunch of news, but then they have a discussion topic. And the discussion topic was all about how people are acting nice online the way we used to back in 1999. And it's it's a really it's it's a really sweet thing because they they talk about how we're helping each other and we're all on the same team and we're we're you know we're much less snarky and uh and and it's just it's just it's a nice conversation because it reminds you that you know we've talked a lot on the show here about people trying to take advantage of the situation but by and large that's not what's happening what's happening is people are being better each other people are helping each other people are posting things just to make each other laugh because we need to laugh right now and I, I couldn't agree with what they said more. Um, and, and one of the things I found, I think, that encourages this is if you do say something nice or something funny, you get a whole lot of love for doing that. I posted I just posted a picture of my dog looking at the door and made a joke about it. And I got like 42 likes on Facebook, <laughs> you know, in normal life that might get one or two. Maybe, you know, the dog lovers, uh, you know, would would certainly uh, would would click on it. David Roth would like it, but that'd be about it. But 42 likes for a dog looking at a door. <laughs> That's a really good point. And it, it extends beyond the, the digital world, too, because. I'm noticing when I go out for my for my exercise that people are, you know, they're going out of their way to, to keep the two meters apart and stuff. But they also, when you reciprocate, when it's obvious that both of you are being considerate, you will get a smile and a good morning. And to be honest, before this crisis, most people had their head down or their head in their phone and they weren't acknowledging the existence of anyone else. And now you have people proactively being nice. I'm making a point of saying thank you to every store clerk, saying, you know, thank you for what you do. And I really appreciate it because without them, I couldn't eat. And their job is not one I want right now. So I think I should thank them. And I, I guess I should I would ask everyone listening to do the same to the, to, to the people who are keeping us all going in these difficult times. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it's I'm, I'm glad to hear you say the thing about uh, on the street, too. It, it used to be if somebody walked away from you on a sidewalk, they'd be like, what? Do you think there's something wrong with me? Now you're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> that was really nice. I really appreciate you avoiding me entirely and waving to me. Yeah, people are saying hi to each other. And in Los Angeles, you just don't do that. I remember uh, my friend Suzanne came out to uh, to visit us and we went for a jog on the beach, you know, and she said she noticed nobody said hi and I and I thought about that. Thought, oh, she lived in this sweet little part of you know little suburb of Chicago, and everybody knew each other, and that's why. And I realized the reason we don't say hi is because jogging on the beach in normal times would be like hi, 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 hi. So we just don't. <laughs> but now we do. Yeah, and it's nice so, little things. Uh, you know, sort of. Go ahead. <laughs> You know, so I was just going to say the, the, the sort of the thing that I, I, I like to say is, you know, a, a smile and a kind word go a lot further than two meters or six foot. So, you know, spread those around <laughs> and don't spread the virus. Yeah. Well, anyway, check out uh, it's a Daily Tech News show. I put a link in the show notes, but it's entitled 1999 Nice Plus 2020 Memes. So uh, anyway, with Chris Ashley, it's a, it's a nice discussion. It's very nice. All right, Bart, I am going that to let you sign us off. Okie dokie. Well, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure and please, please, please stay safe.
While that is going to wind us up for this week, do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfee.com. And you can follow me on Twitter as at podfee. Remember, everything good starts with podfee.com. If you want to become a patron, go to podfee.com slash Patreon. If you want to cancel your Patreon because you can't afford it, you still go to podfee.com slash Patreon. If you want to do a one-time PayPal donation, you can go to podfee.com slash PayPal. If you want to join our Facebook community, that's podfee.com slash Facebook. Our Slack community is rocking. You should go there for sure. Podfee.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Michael Westbay did for the very first time today, head on over to podfee.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.